and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we feature this month's policy focus entitled Education Savings Accounts. We're going to look at how K-12 public education is operated largely as a monopoly and how ESAs try to solve some of the problems parents have seen in the education system. We're also going to look at how the COVID-19 epidemic played a role in exposing all of this, the legislative victories, and what it all means for your child. And joining us to break it down is the author of this month's policy focus, Dr. Carrie D. Ingram. Dr. Ingram is a visiting fellow at Independent Women's Forum and a senior fellow of Discovery Institute. Prior to joining Discovery Institute, Dr. Ingram spent nearly two decades leading within the field of education as a national consultant. She has been featured on Fox News, and her articles have been published by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, among others. Carrie, it is a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Thanks, Beverly. Glad to join you. And I want to let our listeners know if they want to check out this policy focus, you can, of course, as always, go to IWF.org to read it yourself, learn more about ESAs. But Carrie, as we jump into this, I thought before we get into ESAs, I want to just talk more about the education system being a monopoly. So that's what you wrote about in your policy focus. Why do you call it a monopoly? Well, Beverly, that's a great place to start because until two years ago, public education um, really was a place that all parents um, were forced to send their child unless they had the ability to homeschool uh, their children or money for tuition for private schools. Um, But what we've seen over the past two legislative sessions, 2022 and 2023, has been unprecedented, just incredible victories for school choice. And so it's breaking up that monopoly. So in 2022, we saw the first state, Arizona, followed by West Virginia, become states that offered universal school choice. And what that does, it allows all children, all K-12 children in the entire state to have the ability to have their parents uh, taxpayer-funded money go to the education avenue of their choice. And so it breaks down this monopoly. And what happens is when parents are empowered as consumers to pick that education avenue that will best serve their children, um, then the product comes up uh, just like in any other industry, you know. And so when customers have choices, um, the it drives up innovation we see in other sectors. It drives down costs. Um, And people have to compete for students, uh, just like in the marketplace. And so we saw two states in 2022. But Beverly, what I'm so excited about is what's happened in 2023. Eight other states have now offered universal uh, school choice to their families. Um, And so this one size fits all government run um, public school system is no longer a monopoly in 10 states. Um, and momentum is continuing. Potentially this fall, there could be another 11th state uh, joining in. Well, I want to bring up this this idea of market competition. And you've given an explanation as to why you think that's a good thing. But what about people who think having competition in schools is just a bad thing to have competition because we shouldn't be having children competed against each other, schools compete. We should just fund the schools as needed and, and make sure that they're as good as they can be. What do you say to those who think that schools shouldn't have competition? Well, what we see is on a national stage, so the U.S. is no longer number one in education at the K-12 level, nor are we number two, number three, number four. Um, Education in the United States is one of the lowest among developing nations. And this is a problem 
because as we are lowering that level of education, uh, taking out the competition, taking out high expectations, what we're doing is we're jeopardizing the future of our country, our economy, our national security. Uh, you look at those states that are number one, uh, for example, China, their K-12 education is amongst the top. Well, we've got to compete on a global stage and it's not just our students, um, but it's the future of our students and the long-term implications for our country. Like I said, national security is a major concern when we're not adequately preparing students as well as our uh, nation's economy. And you listed some of the states that have instituted school choice reforms. Do most of these states have similar school choice models? Maybe they model legislation after each other or what, what are some of the, maybe I should ask this, what are some of the commonalities and what are some of the differences? Well, school choice comes in lots of different forms. So parents can have the option, um, what's called open enrollment, to select a different public school, whether it's open enrollment within the district or open enrollment outside of the district. Um, so that's one type of school choice, but that's within the public system. Um, there's also charter schools, magnet schools. Those would be choice schools. Again, those are all public. Um, but what we're really talking about when we talk about education freedom that's school choice to move outside of the government system. And so there's education savings accounts, um, which we'll talk more about today. There's private school vouchers, which can also be named private school scholarships. Um, there's tax credit scholarships. There's tax credits. So there's these different avenues, but the gold standard is really what Governor Doug Ducey did in 2022 was implementing universal education savings accounts. And those are the gold standard because they're the most flexible. So, for example, um, like a private school scholarship, the family has to enroll in a private school Well, with an education savings account. Parents are able to select an avenue or avenues for their children anything ranging from using that for curriculum, whether they're going to homeschool, they can use it for tuition, test fees, education technology, just a host of things, um, including therapies for students uh, with special needs or learning differences. And so that model legislation passed by Arizona in 2022 is really laid the framework um, for what we've seen happen in 2023 and going forward, these education savings accounts. So looking specifically at Arizona's model, how much money goes into these education savings accounts? And is there a concern that if money leaves the public education system, then public schools are going to see a decline? Well, absolutely. That is just that chief lie that the opposition uses that um, school choice, particularly education savings accounts or private school scholarships, defund public schools. Uh, they don't defund public schools. So when you look at what happens is with an education savings account, for example, as in Arizona, the family receives the student's state portion. And oftentimes it's not even the full portion that that student, that the public school would get for that student. But that family does not get any of the federal or the local uh, taxpayer funded uh, for their student when they move outside the system. So the public school, yes, they will lose a student, a, one less student to educate, but they continue to keep a portion of the state funding, all of the federal funding, all of the local funding, and they don't have to educate that child. So you're not defunding public schools, but what you're saying to public schools is, if people are going to leave you for better alternatives, 
because you're not doing an adequate job and we've opened up this free market through the avenue of education savings accounts, you're going to have more money per student to actually educate the children that remain in your system. So public schools aren't being defunded. Uh, they're actually getting more money per student they have to educate. Um, but they're going to have to be creative just like any other um, private school would have to do or any other business. You know, when your volume goes down, um, you're going to have to change your facilities. You're going to have to change some of your staffing. But public schools are refusing to do that. And they're so concerned with the total dollar amount, even though they're having more uh, money per student. So in the state of Arizona, is every parent able to get this for their child or is there a limited amount? What is that process like to even apply for it? Great question. So the term universal, um, which gets thrown around a lot, simply means all K-12 children. So every single student in the state. So for example, in Arizona, there's 1.1 million K-12 students. Every single student qualifies and all parents have to do is apply to receive those funds. Um, and what we saw last year was the demand was so great that the system actually crashed um, because of the volume. And so, you know, that first day, everyone was there uh, logging in, wanting to take advantage of this um, and just tremendous um, desire from families. So we've already seen this in the eight states this year as well. Uh, Florida, for example, has a very high student population in their state and the parental demand. It's not just that parents you know, wanted out of public schools, but they are quickly applying to take advantage of these education savings accounts. And so as we see this market shift where parents are taking this money, moving their kids into different alternatives, and, and I guess some of this could also just be, like you were saying, um, getting tutoring for their child or with someone with learning disabilities getting help in, in some way for that, their education. Are we seeing other types of school systems pop up? Are we seeing a lot of innovation in the education system because parents are shopping? Yes. And so we've seen tremendous growth of um, during COVID. They were called learning pods. Uh, those that stuck around, it became a little more formal and grew a little bit, kind of moved into this umbrella of being called micro schools. Um, but we're seeing education entrepreneurs come on the scene. They recognize that parents are now empowered with the funds to take those to the education avenue that they believe will best serve their child. So these education entrepreneurs are creating a system um, and they're attracting not just students, but they're also attracting teachers from the public system, teachers that are fed up. Um, with just the chaos that's happened, schools being shut down in some states spanning three school years because of the teacher union's irrelevant demands. Um, but we're also seeing that the states where this school choice is coming, although those education entrepreneurs are popping up very, very quickly, it's estimated that there's one and a half million children right now being educated through a micro school, um, which a lot of that growth has just been in the last two years. But what we're seeing is um, that the demand is outpacing the supply. So we need more people um, to grow their existing school outside of the system. You know, private schools figure out how to have new campuses, new delivery models to serve more and more parents that want this alternative. Um, and also just calling on these retired teachers, these educators that want to be in charge of their future. They don't want to be stuck with a typical public school 
seniority um, salary schedule, but they want to be rewarded for their performance, for their hard work. They want to have the flexibility to teach kids and not just this mandated curriculum that they know is not effectively educating students. So there's just this ripe opportunity for families to um, choose a new avenue that's fresh, full of energy, where these um, education entrepreneurs, again, like I said, lots of times we're former um, public school teachers are coming on the scene to meet that need, but we need more and more. And no doubt, no doubt there's been a lot of pushback either from teacher unions or public school systems themselves. What have you heard are some of the tactics that are being used to try to prevent legislation or try to shame people who are trying to push forward with these types of school choice options? Well, fear would probably be the number one thing. And we see that in states like Texas. Texas is about to have a special legislative session here where Governor Greg Abbott is working to advance universal school choice in Texas, where Texas would be the 11th state in the nation. But there is just this groundswell by the opposition putting fear into people. They're saying, well, if you get this government money to take to the education avenue of your choice, there's going to be all of this regulation. You're going to lose your ability to homeschool. And they're scaring people. But this is no different than when people get money from the government, say, for food stamps. Well, they're not going to attack those grocery stores or try to put them out of business or overregulate them simply because people are selecting them. And it's the same thing when universal school choice comes in and it's a free market. When families have those funds and they select the school, um, there shouldn't be this fear of this overregulation um, because it's really, in essence, it's taxpayer money. It's not government money. Um, and so we just want to say, don't be afraid of school choice. You know, they put these fears out there. It's not going to collapse public education. The majority of students are still there, but it is going to cause public education to improve, to respond. It's going to weaken the power of those teacher unions that have misplaced priorities in the education of the children. So the byproducts are very, very positive, but we've got to take that fear factor out. It's just not true. Well, I want to take a moment to ask you, our audience, a question. Are you sick of the extreme in politics? Do you want a fresh look at policies impacting you most from a nuanced perspective? Then I have got a show for you. Every Wednesday morning, the Base Politics podcast is tackling the top stories of the week and helping listeners keep up with our swiftly moving political landscape. Hosted by Hannah Cox and Proud Belumbo. Brad Palumbo, the Base Politics Show is dedicated to teaching you how to think, not what to think. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform by searching Base Politics or going to basepolitics.com to learn more. And Carrie, coming to you, I, I think it's so interesting. It's been in the past three years that we've seen so much movement on this front. How much did COVID open the door for this? Because that's when we know parents were seeing what their children were actually learning when you had their their child on the computer at home and they got to hear what the teachers were doing. Beverly, you're exactly right. COVID was a catalyst. So parents had that front row seat. And what we saw at the immediate school shutdowns in the spring of 2020 um, parents were scrambling. They were trying to figure out how to get their kids logged on to these remote Zoom sessions. You know, they were figuring out just how to get groceries delivered to the house or whatnot. Um, so it was in those first few months um, where it was just kind of chaos for our country. But once summer hit, private schools announced that they were going to reopen in the fall. They proved that it was safe to do so. And public schools stayed closed. 
public schools, um, the teacher unions, they had just these crazy demands to reopen school. For example, out in LA, they were demanding a moratorium on charter schools to open their public school. They were demanding Medicare for all, defund the police. And parents said, hey, my child's at home. They're not learning. They're not getting the education that my tax money goes to fund. And so they really became exposed to the teacher union's alternative agendas. But they also had that front row seat into the classroom through the Zoom sessions to see that the academics weren't quality. There wasn't a good quantity being taught each day. And there also was very, very concerning political agendas and these ideologies that went against the very best for these children. Things like critical race theory, radical gender ideology, um, not teaching civics from the lens um, where we want kids to know the truth of our history, but kids are being taught to hate their country. And parents said, hey, enough is enough. And when parents spoke up, we saw this groundswell happen. And as a result, um, what we have today is just sweeping school choice across our country. Uh, just real quick, want to mention in 2023, Beverly, there was 124 bills put forth among states for school choice, and 80 of those were the most robust of the education savings accounts. But it's because parents got involved um, and they're really turning the tide here on opening school choice. And no doubt, whenever you institute something new, there are going to be some growing pains and some hurdles along the way. What type of wrinkles have you had to iron out or states had to iron out as they've implemented these policies? Well, passing it is one thing, um, but implementation, to your point, is essential. And so making sure that the technology is in place so that when the demand comes and it does come quickly in these states that pass sweeping school choice bills, um, that the system can handle that demand. Um, but also just making sure that there's great communication efforts. So, you know, is there communication to make sure all parents know how to apply, what the timeline is, when to apply, what funds, um, I'm sorry, what expenses can they actually use these funds for? And so communication is essential, um, but also having the technology in place. For example, uh, digital wallets are a great system where the family can log on and through that platform, they can pay for the education service, whether it's the private school tuition, the micro school costs, the curriculum, the therapies, tutoring. So implementation is key, getting the word out, but also making it easy for parents. And just final question for you, for our listeners, maybe they're not sure what their policies are like in their own state. Where can they go to find out more information? And even if there is potential legislation that's being discussed so that they can call their state legislator and support school choice. Absolutely. Well, there's so many great organizations doing great work. And I would say an excellent place to look is at the Independent Women's Forum on our Education Freedom Center site as well as at Discovery Institute on our American Center for Transforming Education website. So you can follow what's happening there across the nation. You also um, can really today just look in the news, you know, Google your state and say, do we have school choice? What is it? Because education freedom has really become one of the number one issues in our country. And so many organizations are working collaboratively to see how we can best open up this avenue for parents to be the decider on the education of their children. 
And again, want to let our listeners know if they want to read more on this policy focus, they can go to IWF.org. It is called Education Savings Accounts. Dr. Carrie D. Ingram, thank you so much for your work on this and also joining us on She Thinks today. Thanks, Beverly. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review. It does help. And we'd love it if you share this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here, here at IWF. Thanks for watching.